The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. How are you doing? Good. Um, okay. So just a, a few words about some of the things we've, we've uh, covered and then we'll move forward. We uh, discussed the, the importance of, of recognizing that the, the seeds of anger lie within. Uh, and that's not to say that the, what happens in the world doesn't impact us or doesn't matter or doesn't require our action, but that we uh, work to take, to be fully accountable for the, the anger that we experience while finding some way of, of being accountable without blame, without self-blame, which is a, a delicate uh, balance. Um, and so this is a practice we could say maybe of draining the, the moral charge from anger. We t- tend to be very, very moralistic about what we think should and shouldn't arise within us, what we, the ways in which we interpret what arises uh, to, in the grander context of a story about ourselves. And so we are uh, draining some of the charge that we have, uh, the assumptions of what we think anger means about us. And we're also uh, working to acknowledge that anger carries a burden, uh, that, that it's not, not possible to hold on to anger without suffering ourselves. Uh, and that the very um, impulse of anger to to cause another to suffer uh, invariably weighs on our own hearts. And there's a kind of instant karma to doing harm. So we establish this as, as, a, as a meaningful uh, spiritual project. And, and we spoke about various ways of working within oneself and interpersonally to uh, cool, cool the flames and grow through the process of anger. Tonight I wanted to talk a bit about um, maturing the understanding of anger, seeing more clearly and forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that is uh, often inevitable when we see more clearly. So again, uh, Shantideva, the the Tibetan saint, If those who, like wanton children, are by nature prone to injure others, what is the point in being angry 
It's like resenting a fire for its heat. Kind of a little bit provocative. Uh, Like resenting a fire for its heat. And in this practice of of, uh, forgiveness, we are uh, learning to perceive the harm that others do, the harm whose path we may cross, learning to, uh, to see that with new eyes, to see that as their, their own uh, incapacity to bear that burden. This famous line for, from a Sufi uh, teacher, it says, overcome any bitterness that may have come because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain entrusted to you not up to the magnitude of the pain entrusted to you. One of the aspects of meditation practice is we get to see how suffering is created and how it spills out, how it comes to a kind of crescendo point and becomes stronger than our mindfulness and spills out. And the more clarity with which we can see this, the more we begin to, to see it within others, the more we uh, can see it's like a dukkha leaking, you know, uh, suffering leaking out when the container of of mindfulness and love is not adequate, when the understanding is such, and we really begin to see this in others. Uh, Longfellow says, uh, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. So some, a few words about what um, may be easier to talk about, what forgiveness is not, because uh, it's so, I think, so often misconstrued in a way that um, seems undoable or maybe even counterproductive. So a few things, not an obligation, not condoning harm, not denial or suppression, not boundaryless kind of, and not necessarily reconciliation. So not not an obligation. Uh, it's not. Um, we're not required to do this. In a certain way. To forgive, uh, we have to to really see the burden created by resentment. We have to feel inspired um, for, in, in a certain way, for our own welfare to put this down. Uh, and it's not something that can be imposed. It's something that we uh, we do uh, for ourselves in a deep sense. 
it doesn't mean that we're condoning harm either, harm that we've suffered. Uh, I think it was Stephen Levine said, uh, forgiving people means uh, you let them back into your heart even though you may never let them back into your home. Right? So... uh, it's not like uh, we. It's not. It's not uh, forgive and forget exactly, right? It's it's being clear. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh said said that um, prison guards can be bodhisattvas. Prison guards can be deep. You know, can be an expression of the Buddha. And what I take that to mean is is that. Uh, uh, just because we're we're opening our heart to somebody does not mean that we're condoning harm or not stepping in to prevent future harm. Forgiveness not denying what's happened or suppressing the feelings of anger. Sometimes there's this um, a tendency to want to leapfrog lots of lots of potential leapfrogs in spiritual practice. And sometimes we pick the teaching that feels easiest at that moment, right? Or that allows us to sort of bypass some of the muck. And so we go right to, right from hatred to like compassion, but it's kind of a brittle, brittle very uh, temperamental compassion can break easily, right? Or it doesn't feel complete. It doesn't feel like it fully accounts for our hearts. And same thing with forgiveness. We, we need to uh, acknowledge that we're not... Some of forgiveness practice is grieving harm, grieving loss. Uh, it's not a suppression of what's, what's arising and it's not boundaryless. It's not. Uh, um, sometimes it's it's easy just to say. Uh, people get so sort of emotionally fused together that uh, the lines between self and other uh, get confusing, and people don't really know exactly how to establish the boundaries. Uh, and then, then last, it's, it's not necessarily reconciliation. Reconciliation is typically considered uh, an additional, something for which pre- forgiveness is a prerequisite, but they're not the same. Forgiveness uh, is a part of that, but reconciliation is um, a fuller coming together. So this is, this is Tan Jeff. He says... Um, when you forgive me for harming you, you decide not to retaliate, to seek no revenge. You don't have to like me. You simply unburden yourself of the weight of resentment and cut the cycle of retribution that would otherwise keep us ensnarled in an ugly, samsaric wrestling match. Um, This is a gift you can give both of us, totally on your own, without having to know or understand, without my having to know or understand what you've done. 
And he continues to say, The Buddha admitted that not all disputes can be reconciled. Uh, There are times when one or both parties are unwilling to exercise the honesty and restraint that true reconciliation requires. Even then, though, forgiveness is still an option. This is why the distinction between reconciliation and forgiveness is so important. It encourages us not to settle for mere forgiveness when the genuine healing of reconciliation is possible. And it allows us to be generous with our forgiveness, even when it's not. So, this process of forgiveness, uh, some of it may happen on its own, just as we go about our business doing this practice. And some of it is catalyzed by, by explicit forgiveness practices. Often, often an important theme in working with our own anger. We're looking, as you can hear, to see more deeply, to see more deeply into the way suffering manifest the way it congeals into a real problem. And uh, it's helpful to be aware of the way in which concepts and abstractions figure into our anger. Uh, So to make this concrete, uh, I was thinking about an experience with a, um, an evangelical uh, person who was outside of, uh, of a 7-Eleven doing a kind of conversion pitch to me, right? Um, I've not been a real fan of fundamentalist religion for a while, uh, since at least my bar mitzvah. <laughs> Um, and uh, the subject of uh, the anger trigger on that front is uh, sensitive, sensitive for me. And the ideas of it, you know, I really, really can sort of get riled up about it. And this is in the abstract, right? This is when, when it's, there's no person involved, but this woman, who I met outside 7-Eleven, who gave me the full cell, including, you know, right now, Matthew, you're headed to hell. <laughs> um, and we got to talking, and um, I heard a bit of her story and how her own religious belief and practice has been uh, quite important in her life. And the abstraction of fundamentalism or evangelism uh, melted into this very real person. Uh, and it was, it was uh, so obviously a cause for my uh, care and uh, kindness. 
and there was no, there was just, there just wasn't all the aversion that comes up when I th- reflect on fundamentalism in this abstract, amorphous way. It was like right here, and I and really felt a lot of care for her. So we need to to uh, examine closely how our conceptual life proliferates anger. Some some words on this. Uh, very deeply ingrained in the teachings. Uh, or the, the teachings around self and not-self. That uh, a, a coagulated sense of who we are, a fixated sense of who we are, is the precondition for anger that the more deeply we hold to a very um, kind of stable, rigid sense of who we are, it's natural, anger will come knocking at our door. So these, these strong ideas of who I am, what makes me good, what makes me bad, what my views are. The long list of I am this, I am not that. Some of which are very conscious to ourselves and some of which really are not. This creates a kind of egoic pressure uh, and uh, the image that, that I have is it's, it's, um, it's a little bit like walking around with a very expensive vase that is very fragile. And you can imagine what it would be like to carry that around, right? Kind of always standing guard and looking you down, you know, are you going to run into me or is that dog going to bump into me or am I going to trip or something like really a lot of, a lot of energy goes into that. And we, in a similar way, really, uh, we stand, stand guard in a certain way at at what we consider like the gates to ourself. The perception of, it's not just a body and mind, but that there's actually the little Matthew inside, the real, you know, the one sort of like pulling the strings behind everything, receiving experience, the one with very defining qualities the center of agency, when we uh, live believing in this, when we live celebrating that sense of self, 
we naturally find the causes of anger because we are this sense of self, the sense of who we are, what makes us of value is going to be threatened. The, the world, the world is, an, is one big ego threat. Right? And if we're always trying to shore up that sense of self, keep out some visitors, welcome in the praise or whatever. Uh, it's a precarious life. And if we live by the ego, if we live for it, we die by the ego too. It's just the other side of the coin. So, one of the... the the uh, we can we can really make this a practice of looking in our lives how is it how how is it that anger manifests out of a defense of who we think we are what we think is most true about us what views we think are so important to who we are and we may be able to to see this at times, how that kind of self-clinging motivates some of the anger, how it's a way of of sort of consolidating the the identity of keeping keeping the boat floating, the boat of self floating, let's say. Um, And there's so much um, potential shame in this. It's so much shame uh, when we feel like we can be found out or when we discover something painful about ourselves. or uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot at stake and it mobilizes our anger in a lot of ways. So when we get angry, we can, we can really investigate um, how is my sense of self threatened in this moment? Now, the teachings on, on not self are here a lot about, but the flip side of this, we could say, is not self, but also not other. So what does this mean? Anger arises towards others. In an interpersonal context, we could say anger arises out of a very fixated sense of the other. That what we blame, when we blame somebody, we want to hang our anger on the coat hook of their deepest essence. <laughs> it's a weird way of putting it. <laughs> but you know, you know that impulse? Like when we get angry at somebody, it's like 
we just want that anger to stick to the deepest essence of their being, right? And it's like, yes, that essence is corrupt and rotting, and that's what's wrong, right? And that's where we want our anger to stay. And the Dharma suggests that, you know, these teachings, not self, not other, uh, that others, too, are a collection of causes and conditions and that tendency to essentialize them and to, f- to place the anger with them in that way is confusion. So when um, I think it was Ajahn Sumedho, uh teacher and out of Theravadan tradition, um, one of his students asked, was going home to visit their family, and um, she asked him, you know, how can I be, and I, I think for, I remember from the story, there was some tension within the family, some difficulty, and she asked, you know, how can I be most kind, you know, on this family trip, on this trip? Uh, and he said, don't create them. Don't create them. And it's speaking to this, uh, that when we hold that fixed view of who the person is at the deepest level, what's good, what's bad, when we hold that, uh, it provides that place to hang our anger in a way. And so we're coming to appreciate all the forces that shape the other, other people in our lives. It's, that's being pointed to when we say, uh, you know, to see the ways in which anger spills out from them, to see a more complex picture how suffering arises in them and then spills out and perhaps harms us. So not self, not other. Uh, now as we, as we do this practice and we get, become more and more intimate with our own suffering, which is, is, is sadly a part of meditation practice, not the only part, but a critical dimension of it is we become more and more intimate with our own suffering. And there's something about this process when we meet that with openness, clarity, the poignancy of all suffering starts to dawn on us. When we experience our own uh, grief or fear or whatever it may be, loss, when we experience that with just reckless abandon, heart wide open, 
we don't just learn something about our own suffering, we learn deeply about uh, the, the poignancy of the human condition. And that it's just a really intense being human. And nobody told us that when we were kids, you know, that this is like a big deal and it's intense. But when we come really close to our suffering without marinating in it, without getting lost in it, without getting into a lot of self-pity, just the clarity and open-heartedness of that, that encounter, it starts to mean something about all suffering. And we start to connect more and more deeply with something within us that really longs not to do harm. I don't know what to, what to call that, but there's something when we start to get still, when we experience our own suffering in that stillness, there's uh, this aspect of the heart that uh, really, really doesn't want to harm others, doesn't want to harm ourselves, because we are just another. So the, we could say maybe the, the karmic feedback loop of harm, we become more sensitive to that, more sensitive to the way that harming others always harms ourselves. We can't shortcut that. We sort of try to look for ways to sort of shortcut nature on that front, but we can't. As we uh, affirm more and more the uh, experiences of our life, whatever they may be, the, or the, the five senses and thinking, uh, however we cut up the pie of experience, as we come to say uh, yes and yes and yes, more and more deeply to what's arising, there comes to be less and less friction in the awareness. There comes to be uh, uh, the awareness uh, maybe becomes uh, frictionless in a way. We've allowed and affirmed experience to be so deeply what it is that that kind of frictionless awareness somehow uh, puts us, uh, heals the, the fundamental alienation of being separate in a way. That through actually the affirmation of what's happening, of, of really saying yes, letting everything be as it is, and pouring mindfulness and love into that, uh, we, 
we start to, uh, it's like the, the barrier that separated ourselves from the world starts to collapse. And we come into a, a deeper relationship with life, a relationship where this sense of, of fundamental alienation starts to melt away and we feel like a part of life, not outside it, mind, body, world, part of life. And there's a, that sense of isolation, that subtle, the way that the sense of self isolates us, uh, fades. And that doesn't mean that we can't distinguish between self and other, but the, the distance we feel from others goes away. The experience becomes very close. It's all close. And from this, from this insight, we, the calmness of this, piece of this, the face of that insight is love. The heart is like silent until there's a need and then springs forth in a very natural way from that stillness. One, one last thing. The Buddha gave a very interesting, very simple, direct piece of advice. Uh, very counterintuitive, too. And he said, if you sort of tried lots of different things, tried to work with anger in all different ways, there's still some holding on to something. Give that person a gift. Some years ago, I had a, there was a meditation group that had a little bit of a schism. And uh, there was somebody that I blamed for that and held some resentment for. And I practiced with it and it got a lot better. It got a lot better. But even maybe a year later, I would hear his name or think of him, and there was like a little charge still, and it was not pleasant. I had not fully let go. So one day I get an email soliciting donations for his nonprofit organization. And I did not feel like giving. (laughs) That was not the first thought that came to mind. First thought was spam folder. But this teaching about, you know, it's like, really? Still holding on after all this time? So I gave some money to uh, his organization. 
And uh, I don't know why it worked, but something about that gesture really transformed how I felt about it. I still don't really understand. But it was something like the disruption of that anger that uh, somehow almost pretending like there was goodwill <laughs> actually catalyzed something in me. And, and there was a sort of like genuine goodwill followed in the wake. So uh, this, is, uh, this is Rumi. He starts by saying, uh, gamble everything for love. Half-heartedness doesn't reach into majesty. You set out to find God, but then you keep stopping for long periods at mean-spirited roadhouses. <laughs> Don't wait any longer. Dive in the ocean. Leave and let the sea be you. Silent, absent, walking an empty road, all praise. So, got a few minutes for uh, some questions, if there are any. Uh, something I wrestle with sometimes is the use of the word forgiveness and the use of the word pardon. I tend to cling or not cling or I tend to use more of the word pardon than forgiveness. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, let me ask, what, is, what does pardon for, for you mean? Well, pardon means uh, not having any punitive measures or revenge based on you know, forgetting what happened or, or excusing it. With the forgiveness, I feel there is some sort of a punitive measure. You can still be punished and forgiven. With pardon is holy, is done. Yeah, yeah, lovely. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no, that sounds, that sounds good. I might have to change my words here. Pardon. Yeah. When I, yeah, that, that's... Uh, yeah. Thank you. I was thinking about the idea of forgiveness not being an obligation. Yeah. There's something, I don't know what to call it. If I don't forgive, I have to carry the burden, the suffering. And so there, there is an impetus there to forgive, to save myself from that. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It, it's not obligation, but I don't know just what it is. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure, but I feel like the way you describe it, that, that motivation is, is totally reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah. <laughs> it, and it's a way of sort of returns to what we talked about at the beginning, which is that uh, um, our own happiness is 
inextricably bound with the happiness of others. You know, and so we don't have to get real intense about like, okay, I'm doing this for myself, for others. You know, sometimes that gets, it gets very foggy. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, just have a very kind of unspiritual observation. I just thought I'd pass on. Pass, pass it on. <laughs> um, can't help but notice that forgiveness can be a long, arduous process. Uh, yet revenge brings really instant satisfaction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... I mean, that's just, that's the sad reality of the situation. Yeah, I'm yeah. not recommending it as a practice, but uh, just, you know, um, it just happens to, it just happens to be true. And, yeah, uh, yeah. But, you know, there's karmic repercussions and all that sort of thing. But anyway, I just thought I'd make that comment and see what you had to say about it. Sure, I, thank you. Um, that was not unspiritual. Spiritual is whatever's happening, whatever is real, that's spiritual. So uh, I appreciate that. Uh, This is what the Buddha was alluding to when he said anger with its poisoned or honeyed tip and poisoned root. That, and it's, you're right, it's like the, the cruel irony of it is that we're rewarded for being unskillful with our anger. Like our evolutionary conditioning is such that we're actually rewarded, we get some positive feedback for lashing out. The tension is relieved in some way and we feel, and revenge is instant, right? And the sweetness is there, even though we are for sure complicating our lives. And that those complications, I mean, the poisoned root part of that phrase, It's not just in that moment. I mean, when I think about sometimes, you think about, you know those people you have loose ends with in life? Where you sort of somehow trespassed in one way or another. And those people, they kind of, they're there. They're kind of in consciousness a bit. Even if they're not really in our lives, they're there. And... uh, a lot of Dharma practice is learning to, to leave no trace in our life. You know, it's like, in order to be able to let go of the past, to really be able to let it go, we need to live quietly in a way, live without a big trace. And sometimes we can't help but have things, and that's part of it. But... Um, important for us to to consider the ways in which anger does leave a lot of loose ends in way. Could I just make one other quick observation? You know, actually, I'm sorry, but just because we have just a couple minutes, I want to get to a couple others, if you don't mind. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Just a quick question. Uh, Sometimes um, I can, it takes me time to forgive others, uh, but then eventually I forgive them but it takes me longer to forgive myself mm, if I did mm. something wrong or I perceived that I hurt somebody. So uh, is that 
normal that it takes longer to forgive yourself if you um, felt like you did something wrong or you said something wrong that hurt others? Yeah. Um, well, th this is a place where, where a distinction between guilt and remorse is helpful. Remorse sounds worse, maybe, but actually in this context, it's, it's the good one. Um, guilt is uh, the uh, convicting us of a crime that maybe we committed, maybe we didn't, sometimes we didn't, convicting ourselves of it, and then fitting that whole crime story into the larger narrative of who we are. I'm like this, I did this, you know, and it, it, we actually weave it into a whole sense of who we are. Leads to a lot of rumination, a lot of um, kind of obsession with the past. Remorse is a clear-eyed appreciation for harm we did and the way that harming others harmed ourselves. And it's something in the heart saying, like, I don't want to do that again. And it builds a motivation towards a life of non-harming. And it's not so much where you don't get mired and obsessed about the past and what we did and everything. It's just this clear and much more simple appreciation. Oh, I was suffering and it spilled out. And to the extent possible, I want to find ways of um, caring for my own heart so that doesn't happen. And so uh, so there's something to, to bear in mind. But yeah, we, you know, I really did not get to uh, anger towards self, which is a huge theme. Yeah, yeah one, one more quick, quickly. Hi, uh, I had a quick question about uh, uh, being angry about, say, uh, persistent injustices that you see or witness in the world, and like also like the inability to have solutions for them that can work to stop suffering of people, and like a feeling of frustration and powerlessness that comes from that. Is that a feeling that one should have about suffering and when you are witnessing suffering of others? And whether whether it needs to be corrected or how can it be used constructively? So, yeah, thank you. Um, There's something that um, I haven't come to terms with in my own life because I sometimes wonder whether some aspects of my own spiritual practice have. Um, isolated me from some some so forms of social suffering i i don't i don't think so but sometimes i wonder in terms of anger and its constructive uses i think uh, i mentioned maybe in the first class that this is a place where anger may be important specifically in exactly the condition you mentioned and um, I don't think that anger is a durable, sustainable fuel for 
our engagement with the world. And that love, we could say, is a more, it regenerates more and doesn't leave us burned out in the same way. So anger, I think, now maybe this is just idealistic and I'm not, I, I, I'm not on the front lines of the most intense suffering in the world. I'm not working in that way. Um, and so maybe this is just my own idealistic vision of it. But my sense is that, uh, that the actions that arise from love are going to be more impactful. But that's not to say anger doesn't springboard us or get the process going. It's just not the last word. Yeah. The most potent spiritual, you know, forces for good, I think often, maybe there's some anger, but you see a lot of love too. So anyway, um, thank you for, uh, thanks for having me and nice to be with you. And, uh, you know, may we, uh, may we all, uh, may our practice, um, be of benefit for ourselves and others. May it ripple out and uh, support, uh, be a cause for less suffering and more joy and ease. So thank you for your practice. I say that not like in a casual way. Like, thank you for your practice. It's sweet to be a part of. Have a good night.